On Sunday mornings, we've been going verse by verse through Luke's gospel together on a regular basis, but obviously this morning as we historically celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we like to take a pause from our study in Luke's gospel. Next week, we'll pick back up there in Luke chapter 22, where we left off and continue moving on. But this morning, if you have your Bibles, if you can join me in the gospel of John chapter 14. And if you do need a Bible as we're turning in ours, there are men in the aisles with copies of the scripture. You can hold your hand up and they'd be happy to give you a Bible so you can not only listen, but follow along in God's word with us. John chapter 14, and I'm going to draw your attention just particularly to two verses. We find ourselves in the midst of the words of Jesus here in John 14. If you look down in verse 18, let me read verse 18 and 19 and then we'll pray. John 14 verse 18, Jesus says, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. A little while longer, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. And Father, we ask now for just the help of your Holy Spirit as we continue to worship in this meeting that, Lord, you'd prepare us to receive the Word of God. And Lord, we, even as we sit here, think of, Lord, no doubt thousands of places around this country where people are gathering believers like ourselves to celebrate joyfully the resurrection and the risen life of your son Jesus Christ and Lord we realize as well in buildings all around this country Lord that there are no doubt people too Lord thousands and thousands who Lord have come into the places of worship just dressed up Lord in a traditional sense Uh, Lord, as a part of their celebration of Easter Day. And Father, we want to pray for them too, that your Holy Spirit, though they maybe didn't even come to a church looking for Jesus, maybe they came, Lord, just as a part of a traditional family experience, we pray that because you are alive, Jesus, that you would move about this nation. We deeply, deeply need an encounter with you, Lord. And we pray that you would reach souls and that people would leave today from places all around this country having met Jesus, having experienced Jesus in their own life in a personal way. And Jesus, thank you that you are with us this morning. You promise whenever two or three gather in your name, you're in the midst. So we welcome you here. Lord, we ask you to strengthen us as believers and that you would speak personally to those, Lord, maybe who haven't yet embraced you yet and that your Holy Spirit would just speak to us Lord, show us you're alive this morning by speaking personally and powerfully to each and every one of our souls in this room this morning. Lord, we thank you that's what you want to do and ask you to bless your word now. We pray these things in Jesus' wonderful name. And everyone said, Amen. You know, a number of years ago, I had the first time experience myself of getting to be... uh, a soccer coach. It was for one of my daughter's middle school uh, soccer teams. It was a group of middle school girls and my first experience ever uh, actually being on the coaching side of a sport that I played a whole lot and uh, getting that very realistic experience. If you're a parent maybe you've had this experience with your own kids or in a community league or whatever maybe before and you get that first time experience as 
as being a coach and I was excited but honestly I was a little bit hesitant because to play a sport is one thing to to be I found out on the the coaching sideline is really a whole different thing and I you know threw myself into this had 25 girls uh, you, you only put 11 out in the field and I have 25 energetic uh, emotional I have uh, three daughters, so I, I can say that with all honesty, not critically, uh, and, and 25 middle school girls, and, and you spend this time trying to figure out who to put out in the field, and you try and teach them everything you possibly can, but I found there's a real challenge in, in the coaching experience, and that is this, is you can instruct them what to do. You can tell them and teach them and train them to the best of your ability what to do and how to perform and what they're supposed to do and what they're not supposed to do when they get out on the field. But you know, if you've had the coaching experience, when that whistle blows and it's game time, you are stuck and paralyzed over on the sideline and you can do nothing other than watch. It, you know, and it, and it, it literally killed me almost every game. I wanted so badly, especially on certain occasions, to just be able to step out on the field with them and to actually impart some assistance to them, to help them. I w if I could just get out there and participate and play with them and actually participate in the actual competition itself with them and help them, man, what a huge difference I realized that that would make if I could actually get out there and contribute something with them rather than having to have just trained them and step back and just watch them participate. And, you know, as I watched that and I experienced that, I realized in some ways there's a real spiritual analogy in a lot of ways to that. Because I think a lot of people, their perspective towards Jesus, many people kind of view Jesus kind of just like, like a spiritual coach. Uh, rather than looking at Jesus as we ought to, as a spiritual companion, as Savior and Lord. And let me explain what I mean by that. A lot of people look at Jesus, both those who have never met Jesus Christ in salvation as Savior and Lord, as well as I think even a lot of Christians who have truly been born again and have accepted Jesus as Savior. But I think a lot of people view Jesus kind of in a very limited way, like he's just a spiritual coach. That is, Jesus, he, he, he picks who's going to be on the team and he accepts you onto the team. That's his job. And Jesus instructs and he teaches us and he shows us what to do and he tells us how to live in a way to honor God and to live for God. But that's pretty much it. When the reality is, is that Jesus intends so much more. Not only does Jesus accept us onto the team, not only does Jesus teach us and train us and tell us how to live for God, but Jesus, the wonderful thing is, he steps right into life with us and he wants to assist us, empower us, cooperate, participate in every way with us in our spiritual life to help us live a victorious life in relationship with God. And he wants to be involved in our lives. He wants to be a part of our lives in every way, not just stand on the sideline and say, look, here's how to live and try your best to live a religious lifestyle. No, Jesus wants to be a relational, living, personal companion who lives out our spiritual life with us, empowering us and helping us and assisting us how to have victory over sin and how to live out a pleasing life to God. I love what the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 at the end of the chapter after a great discourse on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There Paul proclaims, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord 
Jesus Christ. The fact that Jesus is alive from the dead, he's not still hanging upon a cross as some pictures and images indicate. The fact that Jesus is alive from the dead means he doesn't want to just give us some spiritual instruction. He wants by his spirit to give us the impartation of his life becoming a part of our lives that we might experience his victory that we can't accomplish on our own. Because I can tell you this, I can't beat sin on my own. I tried it for almost 18 years. I was a royal failure. And I had no control and sin dominated my life. And I had to live the way that I lived by my sinful compulsions and passions. And even since I've come to Jesus, I continue to realize I can't live victorious over my selfishness and sinfulness on my own. Just by reading some instructions about the words of Jesus to me, I need the help of Jesus, the involvement of Jesus in my life to give me the victory. He says God gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's through our life, experiencing the life of Jesus, that we experience the victory that God intends for us. And I tell you this, your perspective about Jesus can make a huge difference between feeling hopeless and helpless and experiencing hope and victory in your life. Your perspective about Jesus can make the complete difference between living defeated and experiencing the victory that God wants you to experience as he offers it to you freely through the life of his son Jesus. And it's that that I want to talk to you about for a few minutes this morning, particularly from these verses in John chapter 14. Again, let's remember as we move into John chapter 14, throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, he continuously said to his disciples and those who listened to him exactly what he was going to do, why he had come. Jesus told them the Son of Man must be betrayed and suffer many things. They will mock him, they will scourge him, they will spit on him, and they will kill him, and the third day he will rise again. And listen, that statement of Jesus encompasses his ultimate mission. Jesus came both to die on the cross for our sins, but he also came to raise from the dead and have victory over the grave as well. And oftentimes, let me say this, oftentimes I think we put a great emphasis Unsaved people who know about Jesus a little bit, and even Christians as well, we put a great emphasis on embracing the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ upon the cross. And that is important. In fact, that is essential and necessary because Jesus' death upon the cross is necessary to have forgiveness of sins. Romans chapter 3 tells us there is no difference for all sin and fall short of the glory of God. We're all in the same camp. There's no such thing as a perfect person, rich, poor, black, white. It, it does not matter. Where we live, young, old, the Bible says one thing every breathing soul shares in common is we all fail. We all miss the standard of God's holy perfection and we all fall short of it, thought, word, and deed. We all make mistakes, sins, the Bible calls them. And because of that, we have a problem. If we want to be with a holy God, we need to have our sins forgiven. We need to be rescued. That's what Jesus came for. Jesus came into our world to live the sinless life that you and I could never live. And then after he lived that sinless life, Jesus, satisfying the sinless perfection that a holy God requires, being fully God and fully man, in touch with God 
and in touch with humanity, being God and man simultaneously, Jesus then stepped in as a man and took the punishment as the guiltless, innocent one. He took then the punishment that we deserve and allowed his blood to be shed as the wrath of God was poured out as it needed to be upon the sins of the world. And Jesus died in our place substitutionally. And that sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross, it says the blood of Jesus Christ is what cleanses us from all sins. And we need to have our sins forgiven. If Jesus didn't die for our sins, we would have to suffer and die for our sins. And if we don't embrace that forgiveness Jesus offers, we will pay the punishment ourselves for our own sins when we could escape it by embracing what Jesus did. That's why Jesus himself alone can rescue us from the punishment of sin and hell and why God said that God so, Jesus said God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son so that whoever believes upon him won't perish but have everlasting life. And God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world might be saved through him. It was necessary that Jesus die on the cross and it is necessary for each one of us to embrace Jesus' death upon the cross by faith to believe it and receive it for ourselves. However, it doesn't stop there. We can't just embrace the death of Jesus. We also must experience the life of Jesus. Because listen, that same Jesus, as he said who died on the cross for our sins sacrificially in our place, that same Jesus, guess what? He was clinically dead. He was buried in a tomb that was sealed securely by Roman centurion guards. And that Jesus came back from the dead. Three days later, he defeated the power of death, which no other person has ever done. And he came back to life and he is alive today and living forevermore. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, confidently, Christ is risen indeed. And as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ today and we remember, listen, we remember what he did historically. Hey, we remember Jesus died, but Jesus rose from the dead. 2,000 years ago, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he rose from the dead. Hey, great to remember that historically, but we should be experiencing that presently because Jesus is living. Jesus is alive. It's not just an event he accomplished. It's a reality that we might experience his risen life. I love what Jesus declares in Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. Listen to his words. Jesus says, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Literally, when you look at the language, Jesus says there, I am he who lives and who became dead, meaning I went through the death process. I became dead, but I am alive forevermore. And as a result, his life is available and accessible to us today. And I think that's exactly what was on the heart of Jesus as he was sharing these things in John chapter 14, thinking about the reality of anyone who believed upon him and embraced him and accepted him would be able to also experience his life every day in a living relationship. Again, the background of John 14, if you're not familiar, Jesus at this point spending time alone with his disciples the last few hours before his arrest, his suffering, his crucifixion and death upon the cross. And he has been telling the 12 disciples who've been traveling with him for three years that he was going to depart from them. And he keeps telling them, I'm going to be going away shortly. And where I'm going, you can't follow me 
and I'm going to be departing from your company. He's referring to the fact that he would be put to death, but then after he was dead, he would raise from the dead and then he would ascend back into heaven where he came from, back into the presence of the Father at his right hand, and he would not physically be with the disciples on the earth anymore as he had been. Jesus declared in John 16 later on, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. And again, I leave the world and I go to the Father. And that's what he was talking about, describing this departing that was about to happen. But as he's talking about departing, let me bring you into the heart of where the disciples are at this point. The disciples, all they are hearing is Jesus is leaving. And as they're hearing that Jesus is leaving, their hearts are terrified. They're overwhelmed. Jesus says right at the beginning of John chapter 14, let not your heart be troubled. They were terrified at the thought of Jesus' absence and that Jesus was actually going to be leaving them. Why? Because they loved Jesus. And they had developed a very close personal relationship with Jesus throughout the years they were living and traveling around with him and ministering. And they became dependent on Jesus for everything. If they needed instruction, Jesus taught them. If they needed an explanation about something about God or God's kingdom, Jesus explained it to them. If they needed a miracle, Jesus performed it. If they needed somebody healed, Jesus healed them. If they needed provision, Jesus took bread and broke it and fed thousands of people. If they had problems with people who were hassling them, Jesus came to their defense. And they had become very dependent upon Jesus. And they loved him tremendously. And they lived in everyday relationship with him. And the thought of him not being around was alarming. And they were feeling like they were going to be abandoned. They were feeling terrified like children whose parents are ready to walk out on them thinking, how in the world will we get by? How would we survive without Jesus? And their hearts are fearful, they're insecure, and understandably so. And it's in light of that that we find Jesus in these chapters and particularly these two verses here, knowing their hearts are fearful, knowing they're having doubts, knowing they're despairing the thought of Jesus departing from them, trying to now assure them and comfort them in verse 18 and 19, saying to them, look, I will not leave you as orphans, he says. I will come to you. I'm departing, he says, but I will come to you a little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. And because I live, you will live also. Again, Jesus knowing he was going to lay down his life, but he also was going to take his life back up again and raise from the dead, assures the disciples confidently, listen, I'm, I'm not abandoning you. I am going to leave, but don't misinterpret. I'm not abandoning you. I'm not going to forsake you altogether. What was going to happen is that when Jesus rose back from the dead, he would just relate to the disciples in a different way than they'd ever experienced before. See, up to this point, they related to Jesus physically. He came, he took a body of flesh as a man, and he, he was physical. He had a body of flesh. And, and he stood before them in the flesh. Well, now Jesus was going to die on the cross for their sins. He was going to raise from the dead and ascend back to the right hand of the Father. But Jesus says, listen, I'm not going to abandon you. I'm just going to relate to you in a different way than what you've experienced before. I'm going to relate to you spiritually now. You're going to experience me through the realm and the experience of the Spirit. The same way you and I today. We don't live in the day and age when Jesus is walking on our earth physically. That was a specific purpose for which he entered our world for a season. But Jesus is just as much alive today. 
He's just as much available today. He can still teach today. He can still do miracles today. He can still help people today. And he wants people to walk around with him and experience his life today. It's just not in the physical. It's through the experience of the spiritual. And note, Jesus, knowing he was going to come back to alive, he's assuring in verse 18 here the disciples of his living presence. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. Now take note, I think the term Jesus uses there defines exactly what he saw they were struggling with. When we think of the word orphan, it's a term that describes children who've been deprived of necessary care and necessary support. The word orphan basically means a child who's been left helpless or alone. And Jesus is aware the news of his departure is making the disciples kind of feel like that. They feel like, oh no. We're going to be like orphaned children and it's creating fears and hopelessness and they're saying when he leaves, how are we going to survive? How could we live without him? How, you know, we come to love him and have such a close relationship with him and we're so dependent upon him. And it's true, Jesus was departing physically, but he's assuring them in these verses here, listen, but I'm not going to leave you alone. My living presence will still be with you. And I will be there for you and be continually available. To address that fear of being alone, he says, I won't leave you as orphans. That's not what it's going to be like. Despite what you go through, he says, you're not going to be left abandoned. I'm not going to leave you undefended and helpless. And how comforting it must have been for those disciples. Can you imagine to hear Jesus saying, I'm not going to leave you. I won't forsake you. And for them to hear Jesus is not going to leave them alone. They're not going to be forsaken by Jesus, but he would remain with them, would no doubt comfort them tremendously. And listen, this morning, the Bible we read tells us that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you need to know this morning the same applies to you because Jesus has not changed. Jesus Christ will never, ever forsake you. He will not abandon you. And I think the sense of feeling abandoned or being left alone, maybe if you have lost a spouse or you, you've been abandoned by parents in some way or you've been abandoned by close friends or something has happened where, where you feel lonely and abandoned and like everything's resting on your shoulders and if you don't accomplish something that's all dependent upon you, that is probably one of the most stressful, exhausting fearful, overwhelming experiences to feel completely alone and to sense like everything depends upon you. That's a horrible feeling and Jesus knows how that creates worry and stress and anxiety and therefore he says, listen, I won't leave you. I will never abandon you. I will always remain with you and the Lord Jesus, I believe, would want you to know this morning despite what has happened in your life, Maybe you've been abandoned by a spouse. Maybe you've lost a loved one who was a very critical part of your life this past year. Maybe you have parents who didn't fulfill the role they should have and, and in a sense abandoned you in a very painful way. Listen, no matter what has happened in the past, no matter what does happen ahead in the future, no matter what goes on and who departs from you or what happens even in this crazy unstable world, I tell you this, you can count on Jesus to always stick with you. 
Jesus will stay with you. He will remain with you and you can count on him. In fact, Jesus assures us in the word of God a personal guarantee we have that no other human being can give. Hebrews chapter 13 tells us that very thing. It says, For the Lord himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus is dependable. You will never be alone because Jesus seeks to always be with you. You don't have to be alone. It doesn't matter how abandoned you may feel, the presence of Jesus Christ is available to you. In fact, Jesus here goes so far as to say, look, it's not just I won't abandon you. He says in verse 18, actually, I won't orphan and abandon you, but he says, I'll actually come to you. Now, it's one thing not to be abandoned. And somebody just say, hey, don't worry, I'll be around. I'll be over here back in the distance. I mean, I don't want to be close and, and interact with you. But I'll be, I'll be back, you know, I'll be around somewhere. That's, that's one thing. But Jesus says, it's just I want to be around. He says, I want to be intimately, and I'm going to come to you. I'm going to come to you. In other words, he's saying, I'm pursuing you. And that's the thing I love about Jesus. I didn't go looking for Jesus. I can tell you that. I was not looking for Jesus when he found me. He was coming after me. And he kept coming after me and sending people in my life and doing things. And it was obvious he was coming after me. But see, this is what Jesus does because he loves us so much. He pursues us and he brings his presence to us. He says, I will come to you. I won't orphan you, but I will come to you. And that could be a reference to a few things where Jesus says in verse 18, I will come to you. It could be a reference to how after he rose from the dead, remember multiple times, he appeared to his disciples to show them that he was alive. And he came to them a couple of times after he rose from the dead to say, look, I'm alive to evidence to them that he was back from the dead. It could also be an indication of how Jesus would come ultimately through the person of his spirit and that he would become one with them through the agency of the spirit of God. That's what John 14 to 16 is all about really if you read those chapters in, in kind of their collective teaching there. In fact, Jesus says there in verse 20, uh, he says, at that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. He's talking about the, the close intimacy that they would experience. It could also be an indication, Jesus says, I will come to you of the fact of how Jesus said back in John 14, verse 2 and 3, I go to prepare a place for you and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you into my Father. And he talks about coming back ultimately to bring us into heaven as his followers. Jesus simply wanted the disciples to know that he would make himself completely available. He was accessible. He was approachable. And he wasn't just staying at a distance. He was close and coming towards them, making himself completely readily available. And I think Jesus wants everyone to know today that he is accessible. He's available it's not that he won't abandon you. He's available to you. His presence is near and close to you. I love what the scriptures tell us where Paul was in a difficult time in Acts chapter 18 and Jesus spoke to him in a difficult hour and he said, Paul, do not be afraid for I am with you. Later, Paul writes at the end of his life in 2 Timothy chapter 4, at my first defense, no one stood with me but all forsook me he says, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. Man, I love that. Paul said, you know what? There, there were some times when he says, I realized that people are fickle. And it's hard finding loyal human beings. 
It's one of the things our culture has lost. We understand nothing of commitment anymore in our culture. In marriage, in families, in friendships, in workplaces, people don't understand commitment. It says, you know what, it's not about me. It's not about how I feel. It's about I made a commitment. I made a commitment to be faithful and to be loyal. And, and as the Bible says, you know, a friend loves at all times. A brother is born for adversity. And, and we know very little, even in the church today it seems anymore, of commitment, of faithfulness, of loyalty, of camaraderie. And, and Jesus demonstrated to Paul, even in the hours when some of his closest ministry companions forsook him. And, and Paul says, man, at the hour when I needed people the most, they were, all, they were all abandoning ship. And Paul says, but the Lord stood with me. He stood with me and he strengthened me. He, he never, he never cut and turned loose. He, he stood with me, stood by my side through it all. I think that's why Paul understood the reality of Philippians chapter 4 where he said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Because he stays with me and he strengthens me. And I've experienced that before. Maybe you've experienced that before. When everybody else, maybe Jesus never abandoned ship. He always stays on board with us. He's always there available to us to help us. The most wonderful thing about the assurance of his presence too, I think, is the reality that it's through Jesus' presence that we can have real, sincere relationship with God. The Bible tells us there's one God, one mediator between God and man. It's the man, Christ Jesus. Hebrews 7 says that we come to God through him, through Jesus. That's the way we come to God, is through Jesus. John 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Indicating what? God wants relationship. Our world is so confused. God does not want religion. He doesn't want a religious lifestyle where we try and keep some holier-than-thou rules and we don't do this and, and we do do those and, and we give this much and we say this many things and we attend so many times and we... Listen, great. But God doesn't want religious observance and religious activity. If that was enough, Jesus would have never had to come to the earth. God wants relationship. Relationship. So many people miss this. So many people live religiously. They go through all the pomp and circumstance and tradition and they miss the reality of the person of Jesus in the midst of all the, you know, the practices of religious experiences. But yet they never know Jesus in a relationship. And that's what, what Jesus wants for us. God wants a relationship with us. And the way to have that relationship is through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Revelation 3, Behold, I stand at the door. And I knock on the hearts of people. He says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. And Jesus knocks on the hearts of human beings. He says, listen, I just want to come into your life. I don't want you to just say things about me and read things about me and do things for me. You'll get dressed up and come visit me once or twice a year at a pretty church building. No. <laughs> Yeah, I want to be a part of your life. I'm knocking on your door. I want you to open up your life and have relationship with me. Man, to me, this was revolutionary to me that Jesus and God, they don't want a religious lifestyle. If that's what it is, I can understand why people are turned off. I don't want a religious lifestyle. I don't want more rules to follow. But a relationship, a meaningful relationship, that's what God wants. This morning, if you're here and you don't have a meaningful relationship with Jesus, listen, that's what he wants from you. 
He wants a meaningful personal relationship. Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Do you know him like a friend? And, and do you let him be a part of That's what Jesus wants for you. That's what Jesus wants. He, he loves us. He wants an intimate love relationship to be a part of our lives. And, and how wonderful it is when we come to realize that, oh, that's what God wants. See, that's the gospel message. Not be religious. Get your life together. Try and be a little more spiritual. No, no, no. There are lots of spiritual people who do lots of religious things that are missing the whole point. And they never meet Jesus. And the only way to get into heaven is, guess what? Through Jesus. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. The one way to get into heaven is for Jesus to say, I know you and you know me. And Father, therefore, this person is a part of our family. Jesus is going to be many people who say on that day of their death, when they stand before the judgment seat of God, there are many people who are going to say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and didn't we do that? And didn't we? He's going to say, yes, you did, but I never knew you. I never knew you, and you never knew me. You knew a lot about me. You did wonderful things in my name, but I never knew you. See, Jesus came to do what he did. He says that I can come to you and be a part of your life. That's what Jesus wants, for us to experience his presence in our lives. Well, look at verse 19. He says, a little while longer and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, he tells the disciples, because I live, you will live also. So Jesus assures them, hey, because I'm alive, because I'm alive, I will come to you, become a part of your life. My presence is available. And then in verse 19, it's almost as if, again, knowing he was going to raise from the dead, he's now assuring them, it seems, the power that's available from his life to be imparted into their lives. seems he begins by referring to his death and burial there at the beginning of verse 19, saying, a little while longer and the world will see me no more, he says to the disciples, but you'll still see me. Interesting. The world will see me no more, but you'll still keep seeing me, the language indicates. See, the reality is this. Once the world rejected Jesus, those who didn't want Jesus, as people today still can reject Jesus as they did historically 2,000 years ago, once they rejected Jesus, once Jesus died and suffered on the cross, he was then buried in a tomb and the world didn't have to see him anymore. They got, they got rid of him. And that's why Jesus says here in verse 19, the world will see me no more. Those who in unbelief don't want me and don't want me to be a part of their lives, they won't have to see me anymore. I won't be evident to them anymore. Once I'm put to death, they won't see me anymore. Their unbelief would even then blind their eyes to seeing Jesus as they could have seen him even after he rose from the dead. But see, willful unbelief always blinds the hearts of people to really see Jesus for who he is. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 tells us those whose minds the God of this age, that is the devil... Those whose minds the God of this age has blinded who do not believe lest the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ who is the image of God should shine on them. See, very important thing we read there. Even as the world's unbelief got rid of Jesus so they didn't have to see him anymore, the Bible teaches that the God of this age, the devil, who is real, and just as much Jesus wants your relationship and he wants your soul and he wants you to be in heaven, the devil would love nothing more than to drag your soul down into the pit of hell. And the Bible tells us that the devil blinds the minds of those who do not believe. 
Interesting. Those who do not believe. The Bible says, but when we believe upon Jesus, the veil, it, it, it goes away. But notice that critical thing. When somebody chooses not to believe and says, I, I just can't believe that. No. The Bible teaches everybody has the capacity to believe. God created us that way. It wouldn't be fair if God didn't give everybody the capacity to believe because it's by believing we go to heaven, not works and effort. Everybody can believe. Believing's a choice. It's what you choose to believe in and what you don't. And, and the truth of the gospel is presented, but when people say, you know what, I can't believe that, or in essence, I don't want to believe that, because if I believe that, then it's going to have direct effects upon my life personally. But when people choose not to believe and, and they say, I'm not going to believe that, or I just, and they, and they do the, I did it for a while. You know, it's, it's like that resistance, thing, that battle within. And they choose not to believe. The Bible says the God of the age blinds their minds so that they don't see it clearly. But the moment a person says, you know what, I'm going to choose to believe that. I'm going to choose to believe. I'm going to choose to believe that this is true. And they believe it in a sense whereby they act upon it. Then their eyes become open. And then they see. The God of this age wants to keep people blinded who live in unbelief. But Jesus says here to his disciples, they won't see me anymore. He says, but you, his followers, he says, but you will see me. You will see me. Interesting that Jesus would say that because after his resurrection, he would continue to appear to them. But even beyond his ascension, they would still continue to see him. In fact, the language there is in the present tense in the Greek. Jesus is saying, you will continue to see me. Not just after he was walking around for a few days after his resurrection, but even after he ascended. And why? Because Jesus allows the human understanding in the heart to see through faith. In fact, look with me if you would there in verse 21 of John 14. Jesus says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, those would be his believers and followers, he who has my commandments and keeps them, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him, that is, reveal myself to him. And Jesus is telling us here, look, for those who do believe, who choose to believe, who love me and who live for me, he says the reward of that faith is I'll reveal myself to them. I will manifest myself to them. And I can tell you this firsthand. Once a, and it's not with the physical eye, but once I chose as a sinner to repent of my life of sin and to choose to receive Jesus Christ as the Savior for my sins and to embrace him as the Lord of my life, and I said, Lord, it's true, I need it, I want it. Do it for me, Lord. And I, I willfully embraced it for myself. I tell you this. You begin to see Jesus. I didn't see him physically. I can't tell you. I've ever seen a, a Jesus Christ physically. But the eyes of your heart are enlightened. And Jesus reveals himself to you. Whereby the faith that you have in him. A love relationship begins. And as his spirit enters into our life. And his presence becomes a part of our life. All of a sudden you see Jesus for who he really is. And you see him for yourself. And you hear all these other people talking about Jesus. And all of a sudden you, I see now. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now what? I see. The eyes of our understanding. We're, we're enlightened and we see Jesus for ourselves. And all of a sudden we begin to understand. And Jesus here wanted the disciples to know that they would experience this very thing. Look at the end there of verse 19. He then assures them a great promise. He says, and because I live... 
you will live also. Because I live, he'd raised from the dead, he says, because I will live forever, you will live also. He's promising to provide power for their lives from the power of his own personal life. And the power of Jesus' life, really, at least two things very simply, the power of Jesus' life provides spiritual power for our lives as well. The power of Jesus' life, first of all, very simply, provides the power to have victory over sin. To have victory over sin. Because when Jesus came to this earth, the Bible tells us, as a man, he was tempted in all points just as we are, but yet he was without sin. Which means Jesus experienced the temptation in every way of sin that we do, but guess what? He never failed. I can't even begin to think about what that... He never failed. He overcame every temptation, even direct temptations from the devil. The perfect man, the son of man, the captain of our salvation, he succeeded in every single temptation to sin and he defeated the power of sin and death and guess what? That Jesus is alive and he says, guess what? I want to come live in your life now. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 6, even as we were buried with him in death, we have also been raised with him in a sense as our lives have been joined within the Bible says so that we can walk in newness of life and sin doesn't have to have dominion over us. Why? Because I can, you know, you know count my one, two, three when I get angry before I, before I blow up and erupt? Come on, are you kidding me? Self-resolve fails horrendously. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to cuss. I'm not going to cuss. I'm not going to lust. I'm not going to lust. Come on. But I'll tell you how to have victory over sin. Give up and receive the victory of Jesus to have power over sin. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory. Let's say we work for victory. Who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, sin doesn't have to have dominion over us because Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3 tell us that resurrection power of Jesus, as he rose from the dead, Jesus says, I'll come live in your life. I'm alive. I'll come to you. And I'll live inside you. And I won't just tell you how to live. I will empower you to live victoriously. And see, when a person comes to Jesus Christ, it's not that we don't still have temptation to sin. The difference is, is now, it's not just a coach on the sideline telling us what to do. We have a spiritual companion, the resurrected, risen, risen Jesus living with us. And he says, Tony, you fail. You can't have victory over sin. But let me have the reins of your life because I defeated every sin. And I can defeat this temptation in you. And I can give you victory over this life-dominating habit. And I can help you with every sin and struggle whereby it doesn't have to control you, but you can have victory. And see, Jesus can set people free. He can give people victory. There is nothing that's a bondage and a stronghold in our lives that Jesus Christ cannot give you victory over. But he gives the victory. He's the deliverer, the one who grants freedom and liberation as we learn to yield to what he supplies to us. And secondarily, the power of Jesus' life, because I live, you will live also. It doesn't just give us victory over sin. It also gives to us victory over the fear of death. It gives us the power of possessing eternal life. Because Jesus himself possesses eternal life, that eternal quality of his life, he's God. He's God. And since he has eternal life in himself, he says, because I live eternally, I'm the eternal God, because I live, you will live also. 
I love what Jesus said in John chapter 11 at the death of a loved one. Jesus said this, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you hear what Jesus said there? The physical death process, yes, that's a part of life. Sin and the world and death through sin. We all die physically now. It's appointed for man to die once. Everybody dies. It's unescapable. But Jesus says, He who lives and believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Because he says, Whoever lives and believes in me, truly, they never die. Because see, for the child of God, when we embrace Jesus Christ, when we die, we continue to live. Why? Because the eternal quality of the life of Jesus, he says, because I live, you will live also. The Bible tells us in 1 John, the reality is this, God has given us eternal life. This life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have this life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, listen, please, that you may know that you have eternal life and continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. That you may know, the Bible says. You ask people, hey, uh, when you die, are you going to go to heaven? Well, I hope so. When you die, are you going to, do you know? Are you going to go to heaven? You're gonna go, well, I mean, I, I mean, I mean, look at the way this guy is, and, and look what these people do. I mean, in, in compare, I mean, of course. I mean, it, it, see, wait a minute. The Bible teaches a person can know definitely whether they're going to heaven or they're going to hell. It's simplistic. The Bible reduces it to our relationship with Jesus Christ. God has given us eternal life, the quality of eternal life, to live in heaven with God forever rather than the only other option, everlasting damnation and destruction in hell forever. And the Bible says God's given us eternal life, that life is in his Son. So if you have the Son, if you have Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. And he says if you don't have the Son of God, you do not possess eternal life. The Bible says we can know. It's very simple. Very simple. But how wonderful that Jesus can assure this promise with his resurrected life, because I live, you can live also. You can know that when you die, there's something wonderful beyond the grave. And it's just transition. And you get rid of this sinful, weak, sick, failing body. And you get out of this struggling, difficult, rotten world that's corrupted with sin and, and the destruction of sinful tendencies of man. And you can live forever and ever in eternal life. And Jesus says, you can know that. Because I live, you will live also. Hey, this morning, let me challenge you with these two final thoughts. First of all, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, I know you embrace the death of Jesus Christ for your sins upon the cross. But let me ask you, as you evaluate, and especially on a morning like this, on Easter, I know you embrace the death of Jesus on the cross for your sins, but are you really experiencing his life? Are you living every day in harmony with Jesus? Are, are you living with Jesus? The Bible tells us in Galatians 2, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The Bible teaches that we should be experiencing the life of Jesus every day. Walking with him, having fellowship with him, relate, not just, again, let's be careful as Christians, not reduce our life to this religious duty and observation. And Lord, I just pray, Lord, if I've been like that, help me. You're alive, Jesus. Awaken me, Lord. Help me to live for you. Help me to live with you and to experience your life every day as a part of my life. 
And if you're here this morning as well and you're not a Christian, you've never embraced Jesus Christ truly as your Savior and your Lord, or maybe you're here and you accepted Jesus at one point and you've backslidden, you've walked away, and you said, you know what? It's Easter. I'm going to go to church. Listen, whether you've walked away from Jesus or you've never come to Jesus, if you're in that camp, can I encourage you this morning, open your life to Jesus today. Believe these things and invite Him in. Say, Jesus, come on in. The doorknob's on the inside of your heart, but open your life to Jesus today. Embrace Him and experience His life. Shall we stand and pray together as we close a final song of worship? Father, thank you for your word and how it speaks to our lives the truth, Lord. How it, sh- it sheds light into our being that we might see the realities of spiritual and eternal things. And as a God who loves us, that you care enough, Lord, to not sit back and be silent, but to reach out to us and to say to each and every one of us exactly what we need to hear. And so, Lord, we ask that your spirit would speak to us afresh this morning. Help us even now to be responsive to what you've said to us. Lord, that your Holy Spirit's ministry would do what only you can do in each and every one of our lives, Lord. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.